Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Sailing Uncovered podcast. My name is Alec Wilkinson and we'll be doing this every month. Our aim is to bring you the biggest names from the sport of sailing, to discuss the hot topics in the sport and also to give airtime to some of the amazing talent that will shape the future of sailing around the world. So, whether you're an armchair sports fan, a fanatical club sailor, or whether you just dream of one day crossing an ocean in a boat, then stay tuned and be inspired and also get involved on Twitter and our webpage. More details of those coming up as well. There's a massive 12 months ahead for sailing from the Olympics and the Vendée Globe to the America's Cup in a year's time and the Volvo Ocean Race as well. So this absolutely feels like the right time to launch our sailing podcast. And by the way, we're interested in regattas all over the world. We think we're across all the biggest events, but please do get in touch wherever you are and tell us about what's happening on your ocean or lake or river or reservoir or whatever body of water is next to you. On Twitter, we're called at Sailing Show or just search for Sailing Uncovered. So what's on the first ever show? It is a fantastic challenge and, and an adventure, um, really more than anything else. There's so many unknowns out there. Mum definitely helped me along the way to um, get to the top. I think I had time to make one cup of tea in the first two weeks of the race. The thing about it is Richard's really into kite surfing. We were going from Necker Island to Anagada, which is about, I don't know, 20 kilometres. Before you make an important navigational decision in a solo race like that, it's, it's really important to grab a bit of sleep, I think. In a few minutes, one of the world's top foiling kiteboarders, and he's still only 18 years old, Ollie Bridge joins us to talk about his European title, the future of the sport, and about life on Richard Branson's glamorous private island. But first, Phil Sharp overcame some horrendous weather conditions and terrible breakages on board his Class 40 boat Emerus to grab a podium finish in last month's Bakerley Transat. It's the oldest solo transatlantic race and one of the most gruelling as well because it goes against the wind. This year it went from Plymouth to New York and we caught up with Phil in Newport as he worked hard to get his boat fixed. Phil, hello. Hello, hello from Newport. Hello. Now, you didn't have long New York because you had to um, deliver the boat to Newport. You can tell us why in a moment. Um, but have you have you recovered yet? That's that's the big question, mentally, if not physically. Um, no, not really. Uh, the recovery actually takes longer than you think. I, I think it takes several weeks, really, to cover from a race like this. I mean, we're averaging sort of two to three hours in the race probably per night, uh, sometimes four if, if, uh, if I'm lucky. So... Um, that, yeah, there's quite a bit to catch up on. I keep still still falling asleep in in a restaurant at about nine or ten in the evening. And and you have been to quite a few restaurants from the photos I've seen online. Um, I guess um, filling yourself up with steak and beer is uh, is is the plus of arriving uh, in New York. Yeah, well, you can't really eat much else in America, really. You just there's just burgers on every menu, and uh, you get a steak if you're lucky. Uh, and um, and I've had a lot of um, a lot of pow chocolates, uh, courtesy of Bakerly, the sponsor of the Transat as well. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. A little bit of uh, French and American cuisine. Anyway, you're in Newport, um, I guess. Um, given the trouble you had on the uh, on the crossing, that you're, you're having the boat rebuilt. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're in um, New England uh, Boatworks, actually, just up the river, river from Newport. It's um, it's it's a pretty impressive place, actually. They've got uh, a huge amount of resources for um, for repairing boats or even even building uh, new composite boats. I mean, they're, they're really good on the composite side. So we're just getting the boat structurally checked over. Uh, there's quite a lot of work to do on like the, the rudders and uh, some repair work inside. So um, so so yeah, it's it's quite important actually because uh, the boat got a real hammering in the in the transat and and there's there's quite a, a job list to get through. Now, I know you didn't have um, an ideal uh, run up to the race. You didn't have long with the boat at all. Um, but when you did get going, it, it was performing well and, and, and you were making great progress and uh, you were challenging in the class 40. Um, but you were beset by, by problems in the end. Yes, I know. I, and I think um, it was always going to be tough because our preparation was, was compromised. Um, we were, uh, we were given the opportunity really to take part in this race uh, very late in the day. Uh, so um, I stepped on the boat for the first time three weeks before the start and only managed to do my um, my qualifying passage as, um, as, as really time on the water. So, so I only got out on the water really once before the start of the race. Uh, and, and it was really uh, a case of getting to know the boat throughout the race um and I, unfortunately getting to know uh where where the problems were as well as is as as is so often the case uh and i know that um yeah i think i think the major thing really was the was the sails on the boats because uh, i didn't have ch- time to get new sails before the start so I had to really just run with a suit of secondhand sails that i got from various places yeah. uh, and i know um i think that cost us um yeah, so it cost me the um, really the most time. I think was was the penalised through to uh, to damage sales. Yeah, and the the the, the penalty. Uh, just talk us through that because that was a uh, was it a six hour penalty, stop go penalty. Yeah. So so the first the first um, evening of the race, I accidentally cut the corner of a traffic separation zone. And I'd actually missed the race briefing, so I wasn't aware that this was a restricted zone. And it should be. It should be said. Me. You missed it. Not not because you missed it. Because you weren't paying attention. You missed it because you had to go to London, didn't you, to get your American visa? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't actually present. Yeah, I couldn't be present for the race briefing. So, so I was told by the the race officers that uh, I needed to go to London and that they would give me a, a separate briefing afterwards. Um, and so I did that. And and in that separate briefing, um, they didn't mention the restricted zone at all. Um, they mentioned the the silly island zones. Um, so so yeah, I got I got handed a six hour penalty for that, uh, which was I think really them just making a, a big statement. And um, uh, I think it was like um, very harsh considering that um, uh, it was an un- unintentional error. Um, but, um, but yeah, I had to, had to deal with it. And, and actually, um, I did quite a lot of work on the boat during the six hour penalty. It was, it was like a stop and go penalty right in the middle of the Atlantic. So I literally had to take all the sails down, stop the boat. And I could only, I could only restart six hours later, this same line in longitude. Um, but I actually found I had some issues with the rudders and, and repaired those. I had to make a 
repair on the spinnaker pole, and these were things I couldn't actually do underway. So, so it had its it had its benefits, and um, and it was all you know it was all very fun actually. Then trying to get back up to the front uh, and get back into the uh, get back into the lead, uh, and um, and the weather was. Um, the weather was very, very variable. So there was a lot of opportunities to take then. Listening to you talk about what you did during that stop-go penalty, you didn't just say positive, but you're pretty resourceful. And and I think that that sort of description is, is perfect for your whole race because um, all the way along you were beset by problems and you overcame them. Um, and one of the major problems was a, a ripped mainsail. Uh, it did offer us probably the most iconic photo um, of the of the race when when you sail past uh, the Statue of Liberty and and that is on the internet if people want to go and have a look at that photo it's a great photo but tell tell us about you know the, the rip sail and and how you got around that yeah well I think I think firstly when you've got issues like this and and with a penalty you've just got to look forward really and um, the the race takes a different turn you've got to you've got to then maybe change your objective slightly and. It was it was it was you know a huge um, a huge uh, shame really that um, the the main sail disintegrated and it was actually when I was trying to take the third reef and I'd just taken the just dropped the sail it was flapping at the the leech uh, for five ten minutes and the leech just started disintegrating uh, and then the, the the main actually ripped all the way started ripping all the way across the sail just below the just below the fourth reef uh, and above the third. Um, so I had to take the mainsail down. I tried to re- repair it, but I didn't have enough decent repair material on board to to really to make the make, make the most of this uh, massive damage. Put the mainsail up, and um, and yeah, the whole thing just ends up ripping across. So um, so so it was it was difficult because I had to think of a way of going upwind, and without a mainsail, it was impossible. I tried going upwind, and I, all I could make was either north or south. Uh, unfortunately, New York lay directly <laughs> west of me, so I can make any VMG whatsoever, and I can only make about four knots over the, in the water. So, um, after an hour's sleep and recovery, um, I woke up actually with an idea in my head uh, more positively, and tied the leech of the two sections of the sail together, hoisted it, um, and I could get enough leech tension for the for the sail to be um, remotely useful. Even though, even though it looked absolutely hideous, actually having that sail up the mast damaged like that was much better than not having a main and allowed me to start going upwind uh, vaguely towards the finish, which was, which was a, a great moment. Now, most people would uh, look at that damage, hear what happened, see what happened, and would start pulling their hair out and think, oh, what am I going to do? You went to bed. Um, yeah, that's right. I was so exhausted because I tried repairing the sail uh, it didn't work, and I, I I just couldn't I couldn't really think anymore. And I've learned from solo sailing actually. When you get to that sort of state and you can't mentally apply yourself, it's much better to just go to sleep for half an hour, wake up, uh, and you're you're in a mu- much more positive frame of mind usually, and you can think rationally as well. So before you make an important navigational decision in a solo race like that, it's it's really important to grab a bit of sleep. I think. Uh, it helps a great deal, uh, and um, particularly when you're beset with problems like this, sometimes you have to sort them out before, and you're exhausted. In which case, it's it's always good to um, to try and try and get some sleep in the bag. 
uh, as you know, without sleep, you just you, you're not capable of doing anything rationally. It's it's unbelievable, but um, but that is the case in this sort of game. Do you ever have time to actually think once the once the race starts, or are you constantly just mentally? as well as physically, obviously, but mentally busy as well, constantly thinking, checking, altering this, changing that, or, or is there time to, uh, for a little contemplation? In this race, there was, just, there was just no time. I mean, I didn't even have, I think I had time to make one cup of tea in the first two weeks of the race, and I had hundreds of tea bags. Well, that's desperate for uh, expecting. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. <laughs> and I, I normally, I need, need several cups of tea a day, but, but you have... Um, you end up with so much to do. You've got all your sail changes. You've got to keep the boat going at maximum speed the whole time. Um, you've then got to download weather for, forecasts um, and decide what the best course of action is to take with your 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 strategy and your routing. Um, and then and then you've got to find time to to eat and sleep. And often, um, you know, when you've taken care of the performance side of the boat, and and that you're happy that the boat's going the right direction you've got the right strategy uh there's often very very little time for, to do that and you've, you've sometimes you're sometimes so exhausted and you're so hungry you've just got to make the decision between right do i eat or do i sleep and and often i was um i hadn't eaten all day but i just had to go to sleep first before i could do anything because i was so shattered are, are the french so successful at offshore racing because they don't need so much tea as as the brits um but in in all seriousness the the the, the transat is or, or this particular edition was very much a, a french race um there are only two brits in it um and and huge names uh, were taking part from the winner francois gabar to um you know legendary loic peyron and um, what why do you think they really go in for this form of sailing over others. Well, it's incredible because a lot of the races that um, they now seem to dominate were started by the Brits, uh, mainly because it was a crazy idea, and uh, maybe we had the inspiration and the and the endeavour in the first place to go out there and do it, and and they've made the whole sport really commercially successful. So offshore sailing is 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 massive in France, and and. Um, these big names um, like like Louis Peyron um, are household names, and th- sailing is the third biggest uh, sponsored sport in France. So, so it's um, so it's amazing how successful it is, and I think one name uh, really makes the transat so interesting from a French perspective, and that's Eric Tabelli. Uh, he's he's like a god in France. If you mention him, then the fr- a Frenchman will kneel down in front and of you. And of course, Peyron was uh, and- was was racing his original boat. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was, it was a pretty interesting story and uh, idea, and it's it's a real shame he didn't make it across. I guess at the same time he didn't want to completely destroy his old boat, so there was a case of preservation, and uh, he took the safest and and I'm sure the, the right course of action to to retire, given the weather being very very demanding. Um, yeah. But but yeah, no, these guys keep coming back for more, and and the transit is. Um, is is a really really um, big part of of f- French sailing now, um, and a lot of people want to go that, out there and win it. It was it was a real shame there weren't more Brits taking part. I, I was the only Brit to actually get to the finish, um, and um, yeah, I, I hope I hope that um, 
you know, I can inspire more people to, to, um, to get to the start of this incredible race because it is a fantastic challenge and, and an adventure, um, really more than anything else. There's so many unknowns out there, uh, and there's so many, so many twists with, uh, with the weather that time of the year. It's, um, it's very tough, but it's, uh, incredibly, it's in- incredibly challenging and, and it's, it's a great, um, it's a great, uh, I think a story to, mm. to tell people after the race. So for those who don't know, Eric Tabberley won the race in 1964 and the boat that he won the race in Loic Peyron um, tried to do this transat, but, but retired because of, of various issues with the boat. But the, the, the interesting thing is that Tabberley won it in 64 in 27 days and three hours. And um, you came in uh, in 19 days and 31 minutes. So obviously a significant difference. And um, it just, is it just about the design of the boat or, you know, are modern day sailors, uh, do they know more? Do they have different ways of sailing, better tactics, or is it just a, a technical thing? Well, I think that, uh, one big thing is that we've got access to weather data, so we can we can really uh, route ourselves according to to the, the forecast. And that can make a massive difference because you can actually right in the middle of um say a depression as it as it goes through you which is like the fastest way to to go through a system uh, at times and um you know it means you can actually um have a lot more downwinds or a lot more reaching and and try and avoid the upwinds and the upwind is um is very slow indeed unfortunately in my race um there was no way whatsoever of avoiding it towards the end of the race there were there were literally just um westerlies everywhere the last um, the last week of the race, and um, the whole class forty fleet had to go through them, and that's really what broke so many boats and and, and skippers in a way, uh, and and provided the, the real testing conditions for for me, and uh, that's what ripped the mainsail. Uh, and it's um, yeah, it's it's unfortunately a feature you get with this race is that um, there will be a lot of uh, roadblocks, a lot of uh, storms and gales in your way. And um, yeah, you're going to get hit, and uh, and and that's um, that's something that we had to deal with um, every every few days was um, getting hit by quite a large depression. So you came through the transat, a fantastic achievement. Um, what next? Because I know you've got some very precise plans for the near future and 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 further ahead than that. Yeah, so this year we're focusing on the Class 40 Championship and there's there's three main events on that that um, we're taking part in and, and Imaris are taking part in and the first one on that is, is the Transat, which we've accomplished. Uh, we're then going to go up to Quebec for the start of the Quebec Somalo, which is uh, a return transatlantic and then there's uh, another race back in France called the um, Normandy Channel Race, and that's a really strategic, um, really nice race. It's double-handed, and that that will really round off the season for this year. Mm, so a really busy time ahead, Phil. We wish you the very best of luck, and thanks for the insight and for joining us. And you can keep up to date with Phil's progress via our Twitter account, Sailing Uncovered, or at Sailing Show. Now, in just a moment, we hear about sailing's most revolutionary class, the foiling kiteboard. And one of its top athletes, Ollie Bridge. So don't go away. (laughs) 
Welcome back, I'm Alec Wilkinson and this is Sailing Uncovered. Now, I started the podcast by saying that one of our aims is to shine a light on the future of the sport. So in that spirit, let's talk to a young guy who grabbed silver at the inaugural European Championships of foiling kiteboards, 18-year-old Ollie Bridge. Hi, how's it going? All good. So European silver medalist, which also meant you took the under-21 title. Yeah. Um, but how long have you actually been on a foiling board? Um, so I've been foiling since uh, 2012, so quite a few years now. And and how has the technology developed? I mean, how different is it now from, from when it was in 2012? Yeah, it's definitely come a long way. Not only the foils, but also in the kites and Everything's just come together and it's working really, really well at the moment. Um, now, you said you know, it's four years. Do you, do you think, why has it taken so long to get a, a European Championship? Um, really only because everybody used to be on the formula boards and foiling sort of just get bigger and bigger over the years. And now the, the formula boards sort of run out of competitors, so they had to switch it to foils just to bring the numbers back up. Okay, um, and so uh, how was it as far as you know organisations concerned? And because it was in Cagliari, it was uh, off Poeta Beach in Sardinia, um, which is an amazing venue. Did it did it perform for you? Yeah, it was um, pretty. It was a really good regatta, actually, one of the best ones I've ever been to. We had um, six days of racing every day in all conditions. We had the strong Tramontana in the first two days, offshore gusty, shifty. And then the end of the week, we had some nice uh, light thermal sort of winds. And yeah, the race organization and everything was um, perfect. We got a lot of racing in. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite intense, isn't it, um, the format? Because it, it's over six days. You go through the qualifying, then you've got a whole load of finals races before a whole day of medal races. So physically, it must be pretty, pretty difficult. Yeah, definitely. Because normally the, the, the events are normally five days, but this was um even longer so there was a lot of racing every day and um yeah it just it was got quite tiring at the end but um so yeah. do you know why that was is is that a, a foiling thing no there was meant to be a speed event at the the beginning the first two days but that got cancelled so we ended up being there for two days extra and I suppose the great thing about it was it really was an international event. It wasn't like, you know, a, a sort of a, a World Series where you've only got two nations taking part. Um, there were guys um, and girls from, from all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. It was great, actually, because we got – it was the first um, European Championships for the foils, but we still got all the all the normal people that we've had over the past three years. So I don't know how many countries we had representing there, but, yeah, there was – there was a lot of people. Um, when you say normal people, just expand on that because you're talking about normal kiteboarding. Yeah. So like the, the uh, normal people, the normal competitors that we've had in the class for um, the last five, six years, all of those people have switched now across to the foils from the race boards and they're still going at it hard. So, so where are we now with you know kiteboarding and 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 foiling kiteboards? Is it all going to be foiling, or is it going to split very much into two sort of sports? Yeah, so now pretty much um, everything's switched across to the foils um, for the racing, especially 
just 100% on the foils now. I think that's what they want to propose for the Olympics, so it's going to keep that way. Well, the IOC do keep banging on about new sports bringing in younger people and certainly foiling, uh, foiling kite boards. Well, they they tick all the boxes, don't they, from that point of view? Yeah, definitely. We're probably one of the fastest people out there on those uh, 15-minute courses where it's really about the manoeuvres and jibes and attacks and the starts. It's um, pretty amazing the speeds we get up to. And then the straight lines too, just... yeah, it's great to watch for people. Um, and so for those who haven't seen a, a foiling kite board, um, and if you haven't, you should uh, just just Google Ollie Bridge's name and uh, there are plenty of videos of him in action. Um, uh, but just describe what it's like and how it looks. Um, it's, it's just amazing. It's like riding on just butterflat water. There's no sounds, um, no chop, you hit nothing. It's... Perfect, just silent, just a small whistle off the foil. And it is literally just a, a board, and when it when you when you're up and foiling, it's just this little this little fin sticking out the bottom and floating across or flying across the top of the water, isn't it? Yeah, it, the board's not really so important. That's why I think there's so many people coming into it as they've they've been able to change their regular kite surfboards and mount a foil to the bottom of it. Yeah. So is it is it physically? as demanding as kiteboarding more demanding what's it like because we hear a lot about you know america's cup boats now needing a very difficult sort of athlete on board what about boards um i sort of i always thought that the race board was a lot more physical just because you had to work it through the chop and through the all this all the different types of conditions whereas this it's more um you're just pushing, pushing as hard as you can. And I thought at the start it wasn't so physical, but yeah, it is actually re- um, physical, really physical. So what sort of training do you have to do? Um, for me, it's more, I'm, I really like just kiting, that sort of training. Just um, many hours on the water, on the board as possible. Yeah. yeah. And um, what about, you know, the gym and going running or uh, cycling or... Or, or any other sports because now you're no longer at school so you're pretty much full time in um, on, on on your kite board um do you do anything other than being out on the water yeah yeah i do a bit in the gym sometimes when there's no wind and on the bike but yeah when, as soon as the the wind's up that's that's my preferred um sort of training definitely so the- I mean, the big question is, and we've touched on this, mentioned, you know, talking about the Olympics. The big question is, you know, is 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 it the future? I think that the question is now redundant, isn't it? Because you pretty much answered uh, the fact that you know, foiling kite boards are here to here to stay. But I suppose the question now is, how far can they go? How fast can you go? Yeah, there's hundred percent here to stay. I think it's going to be more 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 and more popular throughout the whole sailing classes in the future of the foils. But um, as, as as far as they can go, I think there's a lot there's a lot that we can we can work on, as the these foils have only been out for um, a few years. Whereas I look at where we had race fins, like the way the development in those fins over five years was pretty um, there was a lot there was a lot in it. And I think it's going to go the same way as foiling. There's going to be a lot lot to be gained in the design. Someone who's listening to this, um, who, who'd love to get into it, who hasn't done any kiteboarding. I mean, where where, where do you start with it? Ah, uh, so if they haven't done any kiteboarding before, firstly, they've got to 
learn to kite surf and be a, a confident kite surfer. And then after that, it's going to take them about 10 hours maybe, maybe to just to start with. They need a couple of lessons, but after that, they can work on their own. Once you can kite surf, learning to go on a hydrofoil is likely. It takes the same amount of time as learning to kite surf. And, and it's all about speed and that raises you up and then it, it's all about keeping the balance. I mean, it's quite complicated really on a, on a sailing boat, um, but you make it sound almost straightforward on a kiteboard, but I can't believe it is. Yeah, it's, um, it's all about the balance between the front and the back foot and then the speed when you get them up on the foils. Whereas on these on the on the moth, of course, you've got the wand at the front which controls the angle and stuff, so you don't have to do so much weight shifting in the boat. But on the foils, uh, the the hydro kite foils, we don't have any of that stuff. So it's all to do with the movement of the the pressure in your front and back foot. So if you want the foil to come up, you're putting the pressure on your back foot, and then to go down on the front foot. So it's all about getting that balance right. Cool. And of course, you've got the um, the support of, of your whole family and, and a fairly big family it is because you've got two brothers. So there's three of you. You all kiteboard. And of course, your mum is a, a multi-world champion at kiteboarding and, and she was at the Europeans. Um, how is she finding this this new technology? Yeah, she's um, she's slowly coming across. She hasn't had too much practice this winter, but yeah, she she really it's just enjoyable. It's so much more enjoyable than the race sport. That's why she loves it, too. And yeah, she's um, practicing and getting better. <laughs> um, are we going to see uh, you and your mum, Steph Bridge, competing uh, again fairly soon? Yeah, soon. Um, around the middle of July, there's another um, European tour stop for the foil tour stop called the IKA Kite Foil Gold Cup, which is around the whole of the world. And um, yeah, there's one of those events in Italy, and that's the next one we're going to be at. Um, I- I always wonder with um, you know, the, the, the children of um, athletes, how much uh, of, of your success can you sort of base on, on your mum and, and the fact that maybe she and your dad who, who coaches you, uh, your dad, Eric, um, how much of their coaching from an early age do you think has, has helped? Yeah, for, for me, it's definitely probably the main factor as, as my, my parents were um, – got me into it at the start in 2005 and as soon as it went um possibility of the olympics the racing uh, mum and me mum definitely helped me along the way to um get to the top now i know i've, I've interviewed uh, your mum and your younger brother tom um a few months ago and he was talking about having to juggle school and and training and and so on and the difficulties of that although he seems to kind of quite enjoy it and I suppose starting young is is the trick because you don't actually feel you're making those sacrifices because you're just out having fun that yeah that's really what it's all about it's not really it's more of a hobby not a job I guess and then it's just yeah that's the way I like to think of it because it's the funnest you um you all live down in Exmouth in Devon in the southwest of England um yeah so you've given up school. Are, are you doing any work at the moment? Because I've I've heard about a, a boat building project you're, you're working on. I just basically go to the events and then when it's good wind, um, go riding or there's no wind sometimes in the gym or on the bike. But then um, other than that, sometimes I help my, my granddad out because he's building a boat, but he needs a bit of, ha- of help, obviously. So, um, yeah, I do that in some mornings. 
and that's pretty pretty good. There's yeah. a um, a video on your family web website, um, well, about you guys yeah. um, and your granddad's uh, featured in that, and he's been boat building all his life, hasn't he? Yeah, he has indeed. In in Exmouth. Yeah, in Exmouth, Ian's uh, boat building shop. He used to um, make a lot of Merlin rockets down here, and he's sort of. Uh, it's not really continuing anymore. So this this boat that we're building at the moment is going to be the first boat that's built built in this workshop for the past ten okay. years. I think that's really exciting. Tell me about. a bit more about the boat. Yeah, it's um, it's like a, a Caribbean fishing boat. It's basically like a wooden, it's a wooden Caribbean fishing boat with like a, a long bow, twenty four foot, and a lot of room inside, and um, no tubes. So it's sort of, my granddad explains it as just it's a rib without uh tubes pretty much yeah. <laughs> fantastic and and where are you actually going to sail it or, or are you going to sell it no he's, he's going to use it for himself at, here in Exmouth. yeah well it'll certainly uh it'll certainly be spotted from the beach going out in that it sounds uh fantastic you've got lots of um titles to your name already are the olympics your ultimate goal or are there other um goals within the uh within the discipline within the sport and the class that that you're aiming for possibly might mean more to you i think the the olympics is probably more of the biggest goal for the for the long term but yeah short term i've got a lot more other goals so um like for example in a couple of weeks we're trying to do uh round the isle of white record attempt so that's um something that i'm really because you tried that last year um didn't come off because the yeah. conditions weren't right um tell us a little bit more about your plans for this year um we're gonna have a couple more boats so we can go at our own speeds it's gonna be me my brother and my brother guy and my mum and we're gonna be going for it and yeah just um on the foils got some new foils some new equipment i didn't actually do it last year so this is gonna be the first time for me but it's mainly about the the wind really the direction of the wind either true north or true south really Nice fit, nice fifteen knots, and can reach around so, pretty well. And, and just to get this straight, the target is to go round the Isle of Wight fastest ever, um, and I think the record's held by Sir Ben Ainsley. Yeah, I think it's like two hours something. I'm not sure, but yeah, he he he's got the okay, record. Well, you, you'll need to check that before you set off. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, one one big achievement that you've already done, which um, very few people get to do, and that is um, being invited for a little holiday to Necker Island um, uh, with uh, Sir Richard yeah. Branson. That that must have been amazing. How did it come about? There's one of Richard Branson's friends who who lives in 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 Devon, and he when Richard was doing the Channel Crossing for his birthday, he was invited. So this guy that lives in Devon invited us out to the island to help him and help his kids learn how to kite surf. That's how it really came about. Um, and yeah. there's a, a great photo of you um, at the table with uh, Richard Branson um, having a having a laugh. And uh, yeah. um, we'll have to see if we can uh, tweet that at some point and uh, and and see what people's reactions yeah. are. Yeah, that just um, the thing about it is Richard's really into kite surfing, and that's mainly like his main passion i guess out, out there it's perfect for it too the conditions are pretty all time so he's just kite surfing around and he's also one of the ones that's trying to get kite surfing into the olympics too and yeah it's really helping and so presumably you, you like passed that, on some tips to him and 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 did you get to to kite surf with him yeah yeah we had a couple of trips we were going from necker island to 
Anagada, which is about, I don't know, 20 kilometers on a reach. So he came and we did that <laughs> together. And, um, it's pretty cool. Um, well, just before you go, yeah. um, we always ask uh, our guests for a, a, just a trivia question, which uh, people can then, um, our listeners can then get involved in answering, maybe, maybe on Twitter. And I'll give you the details of how to do that in, in a moment. But um, have you got one for us? Um, yeah, so I've done quite a lot of kitesurfing all around the UK. Um, where do you reckon's my favourite place? Where is Ollie Bridge's favourite kite surfing place? Any clues? There's a lot of tide, and there's an estuary, and it's pretty good in all wind directions. There we go. It's just a bit of fun. Where's Ollie Bridge's favourite place to kiteboard? And we've posted the question on Twitter. You can send us your answer by reply. And by the way, whilst you're there, do please give us a follow because we'll be doing more and more on Twitter as the podcast develops. Right, so uh, what's next for you, Ollie, this summer? I'm going to go and test some new foils over at Levitas, Levitas Kite Foils. Yeah, some of the best best equipment on the market, I'd say. Yeah, it's going to be good being able to double it up doing the kites and the foils at the same time. So going to get a lot done, I think. Good stuff. Thanks very much for, for joining us, Ollie. It's been fascinating speaking to you. Um, best of luck and um, hopefully we'll, we'll speak again soon, maybe with a roundup of the season. Yeah, thank you. And that's it for our very first podcast. Time has flown by. Thanks to our guests, Ollie Bridge and Phil Sharp. Next month, with just a few days to go to Rio 2016, we'll bring you our guide to Olympic sailing uh, with the sailors to look out for and which class of boat will give us the best in and the closest competition. Meantime, stay in touch on Twitter. Search for Sailing Uncovered. It's been great to have you along. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, let us know what you think. Very important to us to know what you think, uh, what you'd like us to talk about, and, of course, who you'd like us to interview in the future. And we'll be back at the end of July. So from me, Alec Wilkinson, happy sailing.